I was thinking about Psalm 32 and the fact that in Psalm 51 you have David's confession, but over in Psalm 32 you read about the richness of God's forgiveness. And the two really are coupled together. When one confesses their sin and asks for forgiveness, God extends forgiveness mercifully. Psalm 32, how blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. And I'm just going to stop there. But just to say, when David kept silent about his sin, it ate away at him. When he confessed his sin to God, he found forgiveness. Uh, We are not preaching on forgiveness right now, but it's impossible to decouple the topic of forgiveness from church discipline. You just can't do it. And so by by necessity, I have been speaking about forgiveness uh, the last couple of weeks, and we'll talk some more about it again this morning. If you're not there already, turn to Matthew chapter 18 and verse 17. And just to refresh your memory, we have been calling this series Evangelizing the Saved, but it is really a discussion about church discipline. And we have said that church discipline is the parallel to evangelism in the church. Whereas evangelism seeks to rescue those enslaved to sin outside the church, church discipline seeks to rescue those enslaved to sin inside the church. It really is evangelizing the saved, and we'll continue to to say that over and over again because we want to bring the gospel to bear on believers' lives who are struggling with, with sin in their lives. And as a church, how do we help those who are struggling? So in light of this, uh, we are continuing to look at five motivations this morning for practicing church discipline, and so that we will know how to rescue those enslaved to their sin. Uh, We have talked about the commitment of a father and God's love for his children. The true mark of sonship is that God disciplines his children. We have seen the constraint of a believer in that believers should not only um, not cause others to sin, but they should be self-disciplined as well and not stumble into sin themselves. We have seen last week the responsibility of us to, to care for a brother and that if we commit a sin against them, we should seek them out and attempt to be restored to them. And this morning, we're going to talk about the concern of a community. That is where you all enter the picture, where you all come into the process of restoring a saint who has fallen. So this is for you this morning. This is a, this is a big deal, not that the last three weeks weren't for you, but, but as a community of believers, how do we respond to somebody who is, who is stubbornly refusing to repent of their sin? That's what we'll be talking about this morning. Uh, one thing we learned from David's messages over the weeks that he preached prior to his departure was that the church is a community, is it not? We belong to one another. We are members of one another. And so this runs completely in a collision course with the idea that our community, we are, our society is an, is an individualistic society. It's a collision course. The fact that we practice church discipline, the fact that we are in community with one another goes completely against uh, society 
and the individualism that runs through the center of our society. So if, if you will with me, turn to Matthew 18 and, and just understand that Matthew 18 takes place in a community of believers. So verse 15, I'm just going to start reading there. And I think uh, this morning we'll just go ahead and read again all the way to the end. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, that if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven." For where two or three have gathered in my name, I am there in their midst. And then Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to seventy times seven. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he had begun to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. But since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had and repayment to be made. So the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him, saying, Have patience with me and I will repay you everything. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. And he seized him and began to choke him, saying, Pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you. But he was unwilling and went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his Lord, moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers, until he should repay all that was owed him. My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. Now, just to remind you, Matthew 18 is really predominantly about repentance and forgiveness and restoration. The word discipline never shows up in the text we noted last week. There is no word church discipline here. We've entitled it that over the years, but the reality is that what's at stake here is the idea of repentance, confession, and forgiveness, okay? And that's what this chapter is largely about, as you see the parable at the end of the story about the need to forgive. 
But as we look at Matthew 18, 15 to 17, what I pointed out to you last week is that one can only be forgiven if they ask for forgiveness. Forgiveness is a process, and so if somebody will not ask for forgiveness, then forgiveness is to be withheld. And that's the whole point of this passage. And, and there were a lot of questions about this, so let me, let me just run through this again. Matthew 18, 1 to 14, is, is in answer to Jesus' question in verse 1. In fact, the whole chapter is an answer to this question about who is greatest in the kingdom. And the answer to the question is, verses 1 to 14, those who emulate childlike humility. And when, what we said about that was that the humility here is more status in society, not, not the attitude of the heart. It's that one who will essentially give up on their worldly stature and humble themselves before God, those are the ones who are greatest in the kingdom. Verses 15 to 35 are talking about those who extend Christ-like forgiveness. Those who extend Christ-like forgiveness will be great in the kingdom. And so repentance and forgiveness and restoration are the issues at hand in the verses that we're looking at this morning. Uh, The discipline that is happening here, the only discipline that is happening, is the withholding of forgiveness by the people of God until somebody repents of their sin. And if they don't, then it progressively moves in stages from private to public, and then ultimately uh, excluding them from the people of God if they won't repent. Withholding forgiveness is appropriate, but, it, but let me just say this. Some of you had questions about this last week. Withholding forgiveness is never a license to become bitter or angry at somebody, okay? It's, it's not licensed to become embittered towards them. What we're saying is that you, the attitude of your heart, you need to be willing to forgive them for sure, but you can't forgive somebody who hasn't repented of their sin. And so, if God himself has not forgiven that individual, if they have not repented, then who are you to extend forgiveness to somebody that even God hasn't forgiven? And that's, that's the question at hand here, because forgiveness is not a feeling. Forgiveness is not a feeling, it's a process. It's a transaction. If somebody sins against you, they have put themselves in a debt to you. And the only way they can be released from that debt is to come to you and ask to be released. And then you release them from the debt. You forgive them. It's a promise that you're not going to hold the debt against them anymore. And so if they don't ever come to you and they don't ask, then how can you possibly forgive them? It's a transaction. Uh, When God forgives, it's not based on feelings. It's based on a promise. And as we saw in Psalm 32 that I just read, David had to go to God and ask him for forgiveness. And in that sense, then, God forgave him. In writing, Psalm 32, in writing. And if you, if you just look at the text of Matthew 18 with me for just a moment, verse 21, Peter says, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? And he says, up to seven times. Uh, and, and then Jesus says to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. 
And, and as you read the parable, you find the story of the, the slave going to the master and, and begging him to forgive him, right? And it's, it's not that the master just releases him. It, he says, uh, I forgave you because you pleaded with me. Do you see that in verse 32? You pleaded with me, so I did. I forgave you. There has to be a seeking out of forgiveness in order for it to be extended. And so, in the same way, uh, can you forgive an unbeliever? And the answer is no. Why? Because they don't understand forgiveness, and they haven't been forgiven by God even. And so, how can you extend forgiveness to somebody whom God hasn't even forgiven? It, It really is a question you need to wrestle through in your mind, because psychology would tell us differently, right? We need to forgive ourselves, or we need to forgive God, or we need to forgive our dead parents who were mean to us. But none of those people are asking for forgiveness, so you can't extend it to them. It's a promise. It's a promise and it's a process. It's not a feeling. That plays into our discussion today. Uh, We are going to just deal with one little phrase in the text in verse 17. Tell it to the church. I'm going to I'm going to pull a Pastor David on you this morning, and I'm just going to deal with one little phrase, (laughs) okay? We are going to just deal with the phrase, tell it to the church. And the only way that I could think to do this was to deal with it in a QA. and a And so what we are going to do is ask and answer six questions related to the restoration of a fallen saint so that we will know how to evangelize the saved. We're still after the same thing here. How do we rescue somebody who is drowning in their sin? And and leaving stage two and entering stage three of church discipline means that we're going from the private realm and the semi-private realm to public. The matter is now going public. Uh, It means that the church as a whole now needs to get involved in the problem and the process because the matter can't be contained any longer. Uh, the, the person has gone. They've tried everything. The person won't repent. They've now taken a group of people, hopefully with a couple of elders in the group, and the person still has become stiff-necked and unrepentant. So now what? Well, now it has to go to the whole church. The whole community has to deal with the problem now. It is now a concern of the community. And it, it also means that the problem has become so serious It is now at such a point that this is the last-ditch effort to try to rescue this person. This is the last ditch. Uh, This is is one of the last things you want to do, not the first things. Uh, One who is under such an official process as this, uh, as stage three of church discipline, they have now entered the danger zone, and they should be warned about it. They should be warned that they are now in danger of being put out of the fellowship. Now, what's the first question? Well, it's simple. What does the phrase, tell it to the church, mean in verse 17? Notice, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And it, and it means simply this, that this, this individual has refused to listen to the private reproof. They have refused the two or three witnesses as well. And so now the matter has to be made more public. You all have to be brought into the process. 
And notice it says, if he refuses to listen to them. Uh, Look back with me at step three, verse 17. I I asked him to put this up there for you. This is our third command. Remember I said that there were were four commands that, that drive the process of discipline. You see that? Verse 15, go and show him his fault. Verse 16, take one or more with you. Verse 17, tell it to the church. And then again in verse 17, let him be. Let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Four verbs that drive the process of church discipline. So, step three, the command, tell it to the church. And the contingency is implied and the result is implied. Uh, It's kind of two possible avenues here. One is, uh, if he listens to you, or to the church, then you've won your brother. Contingency number two is that if he refuses even the church, then you have not won your brother, and you need to go to step four. Okay? And I put it in red there just so you can see the implied contingencies there. It's not in the text, but the logic of the passage flows this way in between the commands. If he refuses to listen to them, notice that phrase, verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, that means literally, uh, the word literally means hearing aside or ignoring or hearing without heeding. He becomes obstinate and he won't repent. That's the point. Uh, They won't repent of their sin. They won't seek forgiveness uh, of the brother or sister whom they have offended. And they won't listen to them. Them must be the two or three witnesses and the individual who's been sinned against. He won't listen to anybody. And so the command is to tell it to the church. Now, what I want you to notice here, and this is important, is that it's still at the individual level here. It's still at the individual level. The verb tell is a second person singular. That means you, the individual, are to tell the church. And this brings up a lot of questions. Uh, This is where it gets difficult. The offended individual is the one that is supposed to let the church know about the situation. So the one or two that have been taken along, they can serve as witnesses to the facts, uh, as I said, which should include an elder or two. But this does not mean that the matter should get gossiped about. It shouldn't be broadcast Uh, It shouldn't just be discussions at random with everybody in the church body. Uh, This is is where we have to look at the context a little bit and try to understand the best application of this, okay? So bear with me. The church, the church, and importantly, this is the the only the second time in Matthew's gospel where the word the church is used. And it's only the second time in any of the gospels that the word is used. And over in Matthew 16 is where we see the other use, and it's where Jesus is talking to Peter, and he says to him in verse 18, Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. You see that? And the gates of hell will not overpower it. There Jesus is talking about his body, the church. But over in Matthew 18, That's not the case. He's talking about a local assembly. He's just talking about a small local assembly of believers. 
So the word is ecclesia, and it, it's just Matthew 18 is not prophetically looking forward to the mystery church made up of Jews and Gentiles. It's not looking to the worldwide church. It's just talking about a local assembly of believers. And so in that local assembly, it was meant to be more familial relationships, more family-like. And so we're not talking about synods. We're not talking about popes. There are no bishops involved here, no local newspapers. It's, it's just a small community of believers. And if somebody will not repent, that little community of believers is to be told about it. That's the point, is that tell it to the church means that the local assembly of believers is to be made aware of the fact that one of the sinning brothers is, is becoming obstinate and stiff-necked and will not repent of their sin. And so the church as a whole needs to respond to the issue now. That leads to the second question. So what's, what's the right procedure for telling the church then? If it's supposed to be the individual letting the church know, then how do they do that? How do they do that? Do they call a specific church meeting, uh, call up an annual business meeting so they can broadcast to everybody what the issue is? I don't think so. And this is, this is where things become really difficult in the, in the restoration process. I'm, I'm using the word restoration in parallel with discipline, just so you know, okay? Because I don't like the word discipline. I think the passage in Matthew 18 is talking about restoration. It's not, there's no discipline going on there other than withholding forgiveness till somebody repents. But this is where things get hard. Jesus does not specify here in Matthew 18 at all how the matter of a sinning saint should be communicated to the congregation. No details, no particulars. any application of this text needs to major on flexibility and sensitivity. This, this, this is where things can get derailed. This is where congregations can factionalize. People can take positions. They can start dividing the congregation over an issue like this. And not only is a process absent in Matthew 18, but any details of a process are also gone and missing. So, so what do we do? Should it, should it be put in the church bulletin? Make for good reading? Uh, should an announcement be made from the pulpit? Should there be a special business meeting to call the issue to order and have people vote on it? It, it just really isn't specified. And because it's not spelled out clearly, we have to look at other passages of Scripture in order to pull together some sort of process so I'd have you turn to 1 Corinthians 14.23 with me, and I need to point some things out to you in 1 Corinthians. Now I'm jumping into the middle of a context which I really don't have time to explain. But just to say, Corinthians was a messed up church, and there were people in Corinth who were creating lots of factions and divisions And in particular, in chapter 14, we're dealing with the issue of the use of spiritual gifts. And so how were the believers there using their spiritual gifts in the corporate setting is is what's being talked about here. So verse 23, Therefore, if the whole church assembles together and all speak in tongues 
and ungifted men or unbelievers enter, will they not say you are mad? Stop right there. The Corinthian assembly, a Gentile community of believers, they not only had believers present, they had unbelievers present. As with any church, they may have had unbelievers within the corporate ranks. And so we need to make sure that in letting the congregation know of a situation, in telling the church that there aren't unbelievers present. You can't broadcast it to everybody because you need to be dealing with believers primarily. It would violate the command to tell it to the who? The church. And the church is made up of who? Believers. That's right, believers. Additionally, if you look at 14... Uh, 33, you don't want to just have somebody stand up in the middle of a worship service and start accusing somebody of something, right? (laughs) Because that would violate any principles of good order. You see that in 1 Corinthians 14, 33. God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. And then drop down to verse 40. But all things must be done properly and in an orderly manner. There has to be some order to how things are communicated to the church. And so I would say that one can easily accomplish the task of telling it to the church by telling it to the elders in their capacity as representatives of the church. God often spoke to the elders of Israel when he wanted to communicate something to the nation as a whole, right? So God would call the elders to himself, and then he would tell them the situation, and then the elders would take that information and disseminate it to the nation. Now you can see this in Exodus 3.15. Why don't we go ahead and just forage around in the Old Testament a little bit here. Look at Exodus chapter 3 and verse 15. We'll go in through verse 16. God furthermore said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial to all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, has appeared to me, saying, I am indeed concerned about you and what has been done to you in Egypt. So you see there God calling the elders, uh, asking Moses to speak to the elders, and then the elders take it to the nation of Israel. Go ahead and flip to Exodus 19. Well, we'll skip Exodus 19.3 and 7. It's the same thing. But turn to Deuteronomy, if you will. Deuteronomy 31. And we'll look at verse 28. Assemble to me all the elders of your tribes and your officers that I may speak these words in their hearing and call the heavens and the earth to witness against them. And then drop down to verse 30. 
Then Moses spoke in the hearing of all the assembly of Israel the words of this song until they were complete. Now, interestingly, here, the assembly of Israel is being equated with the assembly of elders in verse 30. You see that? Call all Israel and then call the elders. And then here the, in verse 30, the elders are the assembly of Israel. And so uh, this is probably what is meant, I would think, by the phrase, tell it to the church. Uh, J. Adams says, tell it to the church by telling it to the elders of the new Israel. The church is the new Israel. And so tell it to the elders and they'll tell it to the church in the way that seems most appropriate. So, the elders of FBC believe that the best way to communicate these types of matters where we're attempting to restore an individual, whether you want to call it church discipline or restoration, the situation in most instances is best communicated to the membership by a letter. By a letter. And, and the reason for that is because it controls the flow of information and makes sure everybody hears the same thing at the same time. That way, you avoid gossip, you avoid slander, you avoid embarrassment, you avoid public quarrels that can't be resolved. Now, no two situations are, are necessarily alike, uh, but again, there's no specified procedure, right? And the believing members of the church need to be made aware of the situation, uh, but wisdom and care need to dictate. Wisdom and care Every situation is different. All the details are different. All the contingencies are different. Also, uh, since every situation is different, the elders don't feel that every detail needs to be made public. You don't need to know everything. You just need to know enough to be able to speak to that individual about their repentance. What you need to know is that in general terms, they are... Refusing to repent. In, in general terms, they have sinned and they're refusing to turn from that sin. And in fact, a mature congregation would not feel the need to know all the details. They would trust the leadership. They do need to know enough, though, to speak to the individual about their sin and about the need to repent with the individual that they have sinned against. Okay, so what then is the congregation's role in this third stage? What are you supposed to do? Every time a situation happens, we get this question, and people go, I don't really know what I'm supposed to do. Well, hopefully I can answer that for you this morning. Here we are at stage three, and this is the last opportunity for a sinning saint to be reconciled under the loving care of the church family. You go to step four, and it's Satan in the world that's going to discipline them in the providence of God. Step three, it's the loving care of a family. The congregation now becomes part of the rescue party. That's your role. You are a rescue party being sent in to rescue this person from self-destruction. This is your opportunity to help the offending, willful brother or sister to come to repentance. And I would just have you look at 2 Thessalonians with me. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 14. 
The Apostle Paul there says, If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that person and do not associate with him so that he will be put to shame. Yet do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. So he's, he's still at this point a believer, you think. We think he's a believer, but his status is now in question. But we're still supposed to treat him, you see that, treat him as a brother. But, you see in verse 14, don't associate with him. Not in the way that you used to. Not in the way that you used to. His status is in question, and so it's not business as usual. It's, it's sort of, in a sense, um, holding them at a distance and only communicating with them in terms of their repentance. Galatians 6.1, we could bring to bear on this as well. We looked at that last week, I believe. Galatians 6, 1, brethren, even if anyone is caught in a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Don't get sucked into their sin. You want to gently try to restore such a one, but at the same time, you have to kind of hold them at a distance until they repent. And I will just say one thing at this point. It is essential for you as a church body to remain united in your efforts at this. Okay? You have to, we have to move as one man in this issue. Because if we have some of us doing one thing and others of us doing another thing, it's going to be confusion, it's going to be chaos, and it won't help that individual. They need to be, in a sense, refused normal fellowship so that they'll feel the pain and the distance of the body. They have to be held at a distance. If some of you just treat them as business as usual and you have them over to your house for dinner and fellowship and playing games, all sorts, it's not going to help them. If you're going to have them over, it's only to talk about their repentance from their sin. It's not fellowship as normal. Okay, so, so how do we work together to restore one who is wayward in their sin? That's the question. And I have eight statements for you, eight answers to this question. And the first is, if the elders send you a letter, do us a favor, read the letter and then destroy it. Read the letter and destroy it. Why? Because you don't want this information getting out to the public at large, to unbelievers, to to other people. It's not a source for gossip. It doesn't want to end up in the local newspaper, right? So read it. You know about it. Destroy the letter. Okay? You don't want it to fall into the wrong hands. Second, do not attempt to continue regular fellowship with the individual as though nothing has changed. And interestingly, in the New Testament, most of the fellowship happens around the table when we're eating, right? So if you're going to have them in your home, then it needs to be a discussion about their repentance. And I think 1 Corinthians 5 is interesting because in that situation, the Apostle Paul tells the Corinthian church not even to eat with such a one. 
And, it, and there he's emphasizing the, the attitude of the table fellowship there. So, so what are some examples of that? Well, so-and-so calls you up and they say, hey, can we get together and do a Bible study together? Well, I would really love to, but we need to talk about your repentance first. Hey, you want to go golfing together? We normally go golfing on Fridays. You want to go golfing together? I don't know why people do that, but, but do you want to go golfing on Friday? <laughs> well, I would really love to get together with you and go golfing, but instead, why don't we spend the time that we would have been golfing together and talk about your repentance? Okay? Normal fellowship can't continue the way it used to because they're out of fellowship with God, they're out of fellowship with another believer, and so they're not restored to the body of Christ, and they need to be. And you have to see that as the greater good. Third, just reiterate, discussions with the individual should be limited to the topic of their repentance. Fourth, what can you do? You can pray for the individual's repentance. Pray for them. They are in the danger zone. Fifth, regard the person as a brother. So when you bump into them in the store, be nice, be social, but, but as one, treat them as one whose status is somewhat in question. Okay? And again, 1 Corinthians 5.11, I, I won't turn you there, but, but it means that you, you just... There in 1 Corinthians 5, he talks about he's a so-called brother, a brother in name only. And we'll, we'll talk about that passage next week. I don't want to spend a lot of time there this morning. Sixth, you can avoid gossiping about the situation. When is gossip okay? Never. Gossip is never okay. And you know what the definition of gossiping is. It's confessing someone else's sins right? It's never okay. Seventh, avoid having a critical spirit. And this is not just of the individual who's in sin, but, but you can help a lot by not having a critical spirit about the leadership as well and how they're handling it. You don't have all the details. You don't know. You don't know everything. Eighth, and finally, beware of pridefully thinking that would never happen to me. Avoid the danger of pride. And I would say one other thing, that an individual who is under stage three of church discipline should not be partaking of communion. They are not in fellowship with the rest of the body. The fellowship is broken at that moment, and that's the whole admonition and 1 Corinthians 11 is to, to not, they, they should do some self-examination, but if they're not doing it, you need to at least withhold it from them. They should not be participating in communion. So the goal here is not only to confront and admonish the sinning individual at a corporate level, but as I said, they need to feel the pain of the loss of familial relationships. They need to feel the pain. And hopefully that pain will cause them to want to fix it and be reconciled to the body. If you don't move together as a group 
and, and they, they sort of backdoor and get fellowship with some of the people in the body, it's not going to help them. It's not going to help them. And, and there really is an element of shame involved in this too. And that is really counterculture. When the sin goes public, there is an element of shame. Fourth question, I've got to move on. We're running out of time. Is it possible to skip steps one and two and go right to step three? Like hopscotch, I guess. And in a word, yeah. Yeah, it's possible. Uh, if one sins publicly, then you're already at stage three. There is no private confrontation. There is no semi-private. They've made it public already. And so you're already at stage three. Uh, the person's sin is of such a nature that, that everybody already knows about it. So 1 Corinthians 5.1, uh, why don't you look at that real quick? This was a horrible situation. The Apostle Paul writes to them, it's actually reported that there is immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind as, as does not exist even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. The son is sleeping with his stepmother, that's the point, and his father's wife. And the church knows about it, and they've publicly reported it to the Apostle Paul. Everybody in the congregation knows it's happening, and there's a faction in the congregation that not only knows that it's happening, but they're sort of rejoicing in their open-mindedness about the sin. And this is what Paul is rebuking here. Are you kidding me? This is like, talk about progressive uh, in your culture. This is, this is ungodly. Uh, and you see in verse 2, he says, uh, the one who had done this should be removed from your midst. But, but in, in, in verse 6 of chapter 5, you see, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? They're rejoicing in their open-mindedness about this sin. They're boasting about it. And the Apostle Paul gives them a public rebuke. But the point is that the sin is already public. It's already public. So forget the private confrontation. Forget the small party of witnesses. The whole church knows about it. It's out in the open. And, and in some senses, it's almost as if the Apostle Paul is rebuking the church more than the individual for not dealing with the situation. That's what's interesting. So here, the elders need to get involved, and they need to deal with this situation. This person, they need to repent immediately, or they need to be put out of the fellowship. Verse 13, remove the wicked man from among yourselves. You see that? By the way, just so we're clear, also, there's no specified amount of time in between the steps of church discipline. We should say that right now. That there is no specified, okay, it's been three weeks, we've got to send them the letter. Okay, it's been two weeks, we've got to kick them out. Okay? There, there's no specified amount of time. And wisdom would seem to dictate that moving slower rather than quicker 
would help the congregation to not be ripped apart, right? Unless the congregation is in some sort of immediate danger. And you could probably think of some examples of that. What about non-members? Have you thought about that? Church discipline is really a benefit of membership because it's, we're a family, and if a member of the family is in sin, we're going to try to rescue them. But if there's somebody who has not made a commitment to the family, then if they enter into gross sin and it's affecting the congregation, what are we going to do with that? What are we going to do with that? Well, we may, we may call them to repentance, but if they refuse us, then for the good of the family, we may just have to ask them to leave. So membership is a, church discipline is a benefit of membership. It really is. Question five, what would repentance look like at this point? What's the leadership looking for? What do we want to see in somebody who's at this stage? Well, you know, as ambiguous as it sounds, we'll know it when we see it. We'll know it when we see it. Uh, And I would just reference you to 2 Corinthians 7. And just look at verses 8 to 10. For though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that the letter caused you sorrow, though only for a while. I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance, for you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. So what are we looking for? Well, we're looking for godly sorrow, a brokenness. We want to see a sorrow that leads somebody to the point of repentance, not a sorrow of the world that they got caught. Right? There's a big difference between somebody being sad and upset and sorrowful that they're embarrassed that they got caught in sin versus somebody who is so broken that they have sinned against God, that they have sinned against their brother, and that they want to turn from that sin and repent. There's a big difference between the two. You have to laugh at the newspapers these days, right? When these public confessions come out, I'm sorry that I may have done this or that, right? It's not really repentance. So what are we looking for? Well, we're looking for godly sorrow that leads to repentance. Secondly, we're looking for a change in affections about the sin. You know, this sin that has had a death grip on them, that they have indulged themselves in, that they love more than they love the fellowship, we want to see them have a change of affection about that sin. Secondly, we're looking for a change in behavior. They need to leave the sin, forsake the sin, and put righteousness in its place. They need to stop sinning and do righteousness. 
And third, we're looking for a change in how they view the sin itself. Are they convinced from the Scripture that what they did was wrong? And in that sense, it would cover the emotion, the intellect, and the will. Repentance involves all three. Each of these may look different depending on the situation. Whatever the sin is that the person is wrapped up in, whatever the specifics are of the situation, it's going to look different from case to case. There's no one-size-fits-all. So as leaders, we may be looking for different things in different situations from, from people. But what we are looking for are signs of life, signs of a regenerate heart right? A desire to change. Even if it's incremental, we'll work with you. But we have to see a desire for change. And beloved, that takes patience. It takes patience and it may take some time. When sin has a death grip on somebody's soul, they don't turn from it easily, trust me. It may take time. But what we're looking for is life. Hold a mirror up to their nose and see if it fogs. Right? Sixth and final question, what do we do if someone leaves of their own volition while we're attempting to restore them? So this is the classic scenario, you can't fire me, I quit. Right? And the answer is, they just did what stage four of discipline would have accomplished. They've disfellowshipped themselves. They've removed themselves from the fellowship and the family of God's people. So what do we do? Well, what this means is that there really was no relationship there to begin with. If they can so quickly forsake the relationships that they had here and go somewhere else, instead of trying to work the problems through, what that tells you is that there really was no relationship there to begin with. Church discipline slash restoration only works if there's really a bond of the Spirit. So either they're unbelievers or they're believers who are acting like unbelievers or they simply don't value the relationships enough to stay and work them through. But regardless, it all ends in the same thing. They're gone and the church has to figure out how to, how to deal with it now that they've left. So, so what do we do? Well, I, I think if they leave, then first we either remove their membership or they remove it. If they don't want to be part of the fellowship, then, then that's their decision. If they leave under a cloud of serious sin, though, the elders may contact the church that they're going to and let the elders there know about the situation. But what we don't want to do is come across like we're like we're harassing somebody, like we're following them to the ends of the earth, right? That's not our responsibility to track everybody down when they leave. They have disfellowshipped themselves, and I think that's the point of Matthew 18, is to put them out of the fellowship if they don't get rid of the sin anyway. Just so we're clear, too, sin and crimes are two separate topics. If somebody sins and they commit a crime on the campus 
or they, they commit a crime against another believer here, uh, then the local authorities need to be brought in to appropriately deal with the matter. We need to work with the local authorities to deal. There are consequences for cr- criminal activity. And you can repent of the sin and you can be forgiven, but you may still have to deal with the fleshly consequences that you've created. You know, this step reminds me, you know, when someone leaves of their own volition, of a coyote who's caught in a trap who chews off three of his legs and he's still caught in the trap. Okay, okay, you didn't get that. It doesn't really solve the problem, right? It doesn't really solve the problem. They're still caught in the trap. And all they've done is actually hurt themselves now because they've refused the means of God's grace to restore them to the fellowship. They've only hurt themselves. Ephesians 4.3, believers are to be diligent to preserve the unity in the bond of peace, right? And I'll just say this, true peace is never going to be achieved artificially. It's, it's only obtainable as we practice repentance, confession, forgiveness, and live like a community of redeemed people. If a fellow saint is stuck in sin at stage three, we need to work together as a body to bring the gospel to bear on this person's life. We need to bring them corporately to the point of repentance so that they might be restored to God and the fellowship. As a community, we need to be concerned about the status of their soul. And in that sense, we need to evangelize the saved. Let's pray. Our Father, we are so thankful that you sought us out and rescued us from our sin. Father, we were at odds with you. We were going astray. We were shaking our fist in your face. But, Father, you turned an enemy into a friend. More than that, our Father, you have made us your children and given us an inheritance. Father, we have so much to be thankful for this morning. We have been forgiven so much. Father, please help us to be a forgiving community. But at times, our Father, when a saint has sinned and when they are refusing to repent, may we have the courage and the fortitude to withhold forgiveness until they come to repentance not for our sake, but for the sake of their soul, that they might be restored both to you and to the fellowship. We pray for your Spirit's enablement in these things, our Father, in Christ's name. Amen.